Welcome to the Bible Live Quiz Hour. It's time to test and grow your knowledge of the Bible. The entire Bible every year. On Sunday nights at 9, join us here for the Bible Live Quiz Hour. Soapy will ask questions from the Bible Live lead. You call in with the correct answers and you win. It's just that simple. So get out your Bible, put on your thinking cap, and hit that speed dial. Because here's the host of The Bible Live. Your Apache Indian scout through the book of books, Soapy Dollar. the Bible live. I am alone in the studio with, with Juanito here. With John is with me. Going to be You're taking your phone calls. Somebody. What? You're alone I'm, with, somebody. with somebody. Alone with somebody. I don't know how that makes you feel, but <laughs> I shouldn't have used those words together. John is here. He's going to be taking your phone calls through the evening. We want you and invite you to be a part of the Bible live broadcast uh, this Sunday evening. Our phone number is 210-340-9585. And John's going to keep reminding Reminding me to keep that number out there for you because I'd love to hear from you. 210-340-9585. So uh, that, uh, and the reason I'm alone in the studio is uh, Stacy, my daughter, who is normally my partner in crime here on the Bible Live broadcast. Stacy is home being mommy to a sick little seven-year-old. My grand boy has got a, some kind of a sickness, and he just doesn't feel good. Grandpa, my head hurts. he got a headache. And, and uh, so we're praying and thinking, lifting him up. And, uh, of course, in this environment, any any kind of a little illness or anything makes everybody all nervous. But you know what? I mean, I, don't, I was asking John, and I've talked to some folks through the day as well, as well. You know, what human being has ever gone from birth to to um, through the life cycle of, of, you know, life on planet Earth without being sick sometime or other? I mean, it's part of our part of our immune system is fighting off viruses and germs and so on and injuries. So uh, we're taking that that God is just using his chance to make him stronger, build him up a little. And, uh, you know, but it's always so hard to watch a, a a child be you know us old folk and us older people we we get sick and you know I'm not very good at being sick myself I I'm, I'm I'm terrible I'm just um my wife Suzanne is so good she's such a trooper and so strength strong but uh, you know I'm not very good but uh we we all sort of hate seeing a child be ill it just breaks our hearts and so uh you might want to lift little William up tonight, along with all of you who have uh, boys and girls and cousins and nephews and grandkids, uh, let's just pray for our children. The God will keep them healthy and strong and thank the Lord for creating these amazing, amazing bodies with that immune system that just um, they're that, that's what it does. You know, it's it's there to fight off these viruses. And uh, it'll do it if we eat well and be strong and don't abuse our, and take care of these bodies that God has given us. Uh, you know, he'll it, it it'll it'll work. 
You know, it works. Anyway, this is the Bible Live. And what have we read this past week? We've really read a very rich, rich um, potent mixture of Bible passages. We finished up the reading the book of Judges. We read Judges chapters 18 through 21 on, I believe it was Monday and Tuesday of this last week. Those are the closing chapters of, um, I guess that was on Wednesday. I, I'm, I'm thinking that was on Monday night. Uh, the, on Monday is when we read those passages, Judges 18 through 21. So we finished the book of Judges. We we're in that series where we're reading Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, that 300 325, 350-year period between uh, the time when the people of Israel entered into the Promised Land uh, under the leadership of Joshua after uh, Moses' death there on the east side of the Jordan. Then they entered in on in the, on the book of Joshua. We have that uh, seven or eight years of intense war battle and warfare uh, as they conquered the promised land. And then uh, they were to the the allotment of land was given to the different tribes of Israel, 12 tribes there. And they were then to clean out. Uh, their different areas, and uh, that's so it covered a period of about three hundred years there in the book of, of uh, Joshua and Judges, and uh, and as we mentioned repeatedly last week, and when Stacy was here, we talked about how dark and dreary and sad and discouraging uh, and depressing. Those years of the book of Judges, those years, uh, the last verse in the book says that there was no king. So the people did what was right in their own eyes. And uh, that was that's pretty much the story in these 12 judges that uh, God used to rescue the people of Israel. uh, Seven cycles of wickedness, falling into sin and falling into, um, in, instead of living with the, the Canaanite, they didn't drive the Canaanite people out of the land as they were told to do uh, unless they converted and followed after the true and living God. They didn't do that. And so therefore they began to live like the people of Canaan and their all of their immorality and all of their perversions and all of their problems and idolatry and and they would fall into that sin pattern and then they would become uh, under persecution they would be oppressed uh, and then God would raise up a leader a hero what is called a judge uh, these uh, 11 men and one woman, the, the judges in the book of Judges. And so uh, they would rescue the people. Then they would experience a time of blessing and a restoration. And then uh, invariably, then they would fall back after a generation or two, 30 years, 40 years, 80 years. They would fall back into those patterns of uh, unbelief and and not following after God. And they would again fall uh, into oppression and so on. So they need to be rescued again. So we saw that cycle. We ended up this this past week on Monday night, we read chapter um, 18 through 21. And we mentioned it last week. I won't spend much time on it tonight, but just to, re, you know, kind of a, a summary, uh, there was this downward spiral 
of wickedness and of of uh, stability in the in the society and all uh, it, it just is a terribly wicked and discouraging uh, book of the of the Bible, the book of Judges. Uh, God is faithful, and 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 there are some of these heroes are really uh, laudable and and heroes, true heroes. Uh, Deborah comes to mind, and maybe a couple of the others. But most of them were kind of, um, you know, they were weak. They were terribly weak, and they were compromised. And, and like Samson, they didn't reach their potential. They didn't realize all the potential that they had as in in God, in God's presence, and and uh, so on. So we we read those stories with great sadness. Now we came to the last chapters, and I'll just simply. Uh, Summarize that it was the El Colmo, como decimos en español, it was El Colmo. It was the, it was the worst of the worst. Finally, everything, uh, it, it, of all the tragedies and all the um, crises and all of the the terrible things that happened, this turned out to be just was just the ugliest, worst. Thing where even the people of Israel said, "Oh man, nothing bad this ever happened in all the history," and they'd seen some bad things, and uh, they it went to civil war. Uh, the eleven of the tribes went to war with the tribe of Benjamin, and almost wiped them out. All but six hundred of the men of of the tribe of Benjamin, all but six hundred of them were killed in a civil war. The other tribes uh, kind of ganging up on Benjamin because of the rape and the murder of a concubine of a traveling Levite. Uh, it, was, it was, in fact, despicable. It was terrible. It was ugly. It was wicked. And uh, he made his case known to all the tribes of Israel by sending body parts from the murdered uh, young lady, sending uh, body parts, 12 pieces to all the different 12 tribes. That's how he got their attention. And it is a, uh, it is it's just an extremely depressing book to read, except for the fact that God is in it. We see the wickedness of humanity. We see the weakness of human beings. Uh, of course, we already know that. We've seen that in ourselves, in our own lives. But this was just kind of the incredible object lesson but what is then the what is then the message of the book of judges what what do we learn from it from all of this ugliness and all of this weakness and all of this perversion and this lack of faith i i will put that question out there for you i'd like for you to give me a call if you don't mind 210 340 9585. What lesson can we as God's people today, Jew or Gentile, that you love God, you follow after God, you're trusting in the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior, the redemptive plan of that God has established and, and sent, and you have a, a relationship with God. What What lesson does the book of Judges, that terrible, dark, time, that dark period of history in Israel, what lesson does it have for us? Now, I'm going to try my hardest not to answer the question for you, but we do move on from that dark period. We move on to the tiny little book of Ruth, only four chapters long, and 
frankly, I, I, I was telling Stacy last week, after I read the book of Judges, I feel like I need to take a bath. I need a shower. It's just to clean off all the ugliness. And, the, and that's what the book of Ruth is to me. It is the sweetest, precious little story of love and friendship and faithfulness and loyalty. And, and I, I just sacrifice is such a beautiful little picture. And it takes place during the time of the judges. That's what it, it's written right there in, in chapter one, verse one, uh, Ruth chapter one, verse one says in the day when the, in the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, east of the Jordan River, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife was Naomi. They had two sons named Malon and Kilian, and uh, uh, the two, they were um, Ephrathites from Bethlehem, as that's where they were from, their hometown in Judah. And they reached Moab and settled there. They were driven there, of course, by that severe famine. And their sons then married two Moabite women. Now, where did the Moabites come from? It's another question that maybe someone could answer for us tonight. Where where does Ruth and, uh, and Orpah, these two women, their two sons married two more by women? And my question for you tonight, if you want to give us a call, 210-340-9585, where, uh, where did the Moabites come from? They, these, these two girls were from... Uh, uh, from the, the Moabite nation, where did that country come from? The Moabites. How do we know about them? Uh, so anyway, they uh, they married uh, two. These two sons married two Moabite women, and then uh, disaster struck poor Naomi, the mother-in-law, Naomi and Elimelech. Her husband Elimelech died, and then her two sons. Both died as well. We don't. We're not told exactly how uh, Malone and Killian or or uh, Elimelech how they died, but they did, and this left Naomi alone without her two sons or her husband, and with these two daughters-in-law. And it's the sweetest story in the world. She tells them she's going to go back to Bethlehem, back to her land. Uh, and sad, she even says to the people there when she gets home, don't call me Naomi. Instead, call me Mara, because Naomi means pleasant, and Mara means bitter. She said, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, bitter, for the Almighty has made life very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the when Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So anyway, that's there was there was a tough time for this lady, and uh, her two daughters though they said, "Oh, don't we want to go with you? We want to go with you." And she said, "No, you shouldn't come with me. Go back. You have families here that'll support you and help you. Stay here. You and I. I can't." bear sons that would that would you know remember and one of the lessons we learned from the book of Ruth is this idea of what is called a leverite or leverite marriage and this was a, an arrangement uh in, in Israel in that time that if a a 
if a woman, let me see if I can say this and get it correctly right, lost her husband, then the brothers of her husband uh, would, in a leveret marriage, they would take responsibility for the their sisters-in-law. They would take the sisters-in-law, in other words, if Ruth had had other boys, other sons, uh, the leveret marriage would have been that he would have taken Orpah and Ruth under his wing and his family and uh, shared so that they don't lose their family inheritance as part of Israel. And then he, they would be taken care of by the rest of the family. And so he would take them in. That was a lever of marriage. Now, Ruth says to them, you should go back to your families because I don't have any other sons and to give and they can't marry. You. And you, there's no way in the world you're going to be, I could ever have, even if I had children now, you wouldn't want to wait you know, 18, 20 years for them to grow up, for them to take care of you and take you into their household. And so he said, no, no, go back to your families. And Orpah did, but the one named Ruth did not. In one of the most beautiful verses of the Bible, Ruth replied, and some of you have heard this, it's turned into music, it's sung at weddings. Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate me from you. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. And I I almost tear up just reading those words again. I've cried over this book so many times it's so precious that ruth loved her mother-in-law uh it's it's like i said this is a beautiful story of friendship of loyalty of family of sacrifice and, and devoted love not just you know wishy-washy emotional love but ruth left things and and she followed after the true and living god i mean that that's something you don't don't skip over that. Your God, it will be my God. And so Ruth and Naomi get back to Bethlehem, and this beautiful little love story takes place. Elimelech, uh, Ruth, uh, I mean, uh, Naomi's husband, Elimelech has a, a family on his side of the family. And as it happens, uh, one of his family members is. Uh, Abel, his name is Boaz, and he is able. It's not a leveret marriage because that involves the sons, you know, the brothers of the sons that died. This is called the kinsman redeemer. If the family had no sons that could take the wife, the the uh, the uh, abandoned wife into their family and keep them, then a family member could do so. A male family member. Uh, starting with the closest family member and then moving out, they had the option then to take this uh, woman into their family. Now, and often they would not want to do it because that means they have to divide the inheritance of a different 
a different inheritance. Uh, they have to they have to make them uh, heirs as well, and it cuts into the inheritance of their biological children, and so uh, and that's what happens in this particular case. Ruth, uh, and there's 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 a little there's a little friendship, and there's a romance, and it's a story of purity. And following after God and, and, and following God and obeying God, Boaz was a principled man, a man of God who he, uh, he didn't you know, take advantage. He, he sacrificially uh, admired this young woman in her love and devotion to her mother-in-law. And, but but it, it's just a beautiful love story. Uh, and so he becomes what is called the kinsman redeemer. And he takes care of her. He owns some uh, uh, farmland. He raises wheat and rye, you know, different uh, kinds of uh, grain, barley and so on. And he uh, he allows Ruth to glean. Remember the, the principle of gleaning that was part of the Mosaic law is that when you, when you glean your fields, when you're harvesting your crop, you're supposed to leave some of the grain and some of the crop uh, on the edges, on the outer edges, and so on for the poor, for the indigent, and for the, those who are traveling so that they would be provided for. And Boaz did that. He noticed that uh, Ruth was gleaning, was trying to uh, help her mother by going out and gleaning uh, her mother-in-law, uh, Naomi, by going out and gleaning and bringing home uh, a basket of, of, of wheat or r- barley or rye or whatever she could get. And Boaz took compassion on her and he protected her, told no one to uh, offend her or abuse her, and that gave her the the, the freedom and, and invited them to come and eat with his hired hands and, and the people that worked for him. Uh, Boaz treated her tenderly and nicely because of her faithfulness uh, to uh, follow after God and to to love uh, and serve her uh, her mother in law. Well, what happens then is that <laughs> uh, Naomi says, "You know, this is you know he's your he's one of your kinsmen." So gave him a signal that you would be willing to for him to to kin, be your kinsman redeemer, and so uh, she did. And then Boaz goes to the city gates, and she um, she he goes to the city gates, and he sits in. That's where the business takes place. That's where a lot of the contracts were signed, and kind of like city hall. Uh, in our setting or down at the courthouse uh, they went he went there and uh he had to give this other man the opportunity to be the kinsman redeemer of Ruth and uh he did uh so he gave him the opportunity uh Naomi says, okay, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man won't rest until he has settled things today. And so so Boaz went to the town gate, took a seat there, and then the family redeemer he had mentioned came by. So Boaz called out to him, this one that was closer to the family than he was, come over here and sit down. I want to talk to you. So they sat down, and Boaz called ten leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, You know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here on the presence of 
these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. And the man said, I'll redeem it. And he said, oh, yeah, but remember, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Then I can't redeem it, said the man, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land. I cannot do it. Uh, and so <laughs> now listen to this. Now, in those days, it was the custom in Israel for anyone transferring a right of purchase to remove to remove his sandal and hand it to the other party. This publicly validated the transaction. So the other family redeemer drew off his sandal and he said to Boaz, you buy the land. And he gave his sandal to Boaz. And so the witnesses saw you are witnesses that today I, I bought from Naomi all the property uh, of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon, and with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Malon, to be my wife. This way she can have a son to carry on the family name of her dead husband and to inherit the family property here in this hometown. You are all witnesses today. And so that's the story, the beautiful little love story that takes place. Now, in the first place, it's such a is such a delivery of rescuing us from the sadness and the wickedness of um, the rest of the book of Judges. In the second place, and probably even more importantly, we see the hand of God at work here in in several ways. And when we come back, I'm going to illustrate those illustrate that to you. What the book of Ruth tells us in the context of the of the time of the judges, what the book of Ruth tells us, and then we're going to move on to the book of Luke in the New Testament, where Ruth is mentioned there. She as she comes into the ancestry line, the ancestral line of Jesus, Christ, Jesus the Messiah Himself. What an amazing, amazing story! So I'll come back and explain that to you when we get into our second segment here on the Bible Live. Our our phone number is 210-340-9585. Don't you dare wait, go away. We'll be right back. Won't want to go. Don't want to go through all those twelve judges again. But that's a great choice, John. You gave a little summary of the book of Judges, and we've now moved to the book of Ruth, the little book that that follows in our Bible. R- Ruth was uh, comes from that in that and there's two reasons or three reasons I get two or three that I really really like the book of Ruth, folks, and that you should you should read it. It is beautiful. It's Oh, it'll make you tear up. It's a celebration of love, of relationships, uh, of purity, of, of of faithfulness, of friendship. It's a it's a wonderful little book. But uh, and two things I want to emphasize. One is it is a, a it, it is a little bit of a of a um it, it's a mitigating book. After you read the book of Judges, in other words, you see the book of Judges and so terrible and so discouraging and so oh, and, and here. But you realize that here, right in the middle of that terrible, dark time in the in, among the in the people of Israel, in that dark, dark time, God was still at work. 
there, and of course, you get that from the book of Judges anyway, because God is at work in, in, in each of these judges and the way he uses them and prepares them and equips them and enables them. Uh, even as weak as, and difficult as like Samson and some of them are, God is there. And you see that he is working uh, without abusing the free will of any individual. He is working to carry out that covenant relationship, that 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 redemptive plan that he had established uh, that he was going to use the people of Israel, the, the, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, and so you see God working incredibly in spite of all the wickedness and all the difficulties and all of the, you see God faithfully carrying out his plan. So that's one thing you see. And, and the book of Ruth kind of reminds you of that in, in, in a beautiful way, because uh, even in this dark time, difficult time, and not only in the nation, but dark, difficult time in the life of Naomi and Elimelech, uh, you see this going on. Uh, and uh, you see that they, everything's difficult, but God is faithful. God is at work. There's a beautiful story, and, and love still survives, and love still overcomes. And and faith still overcomes, and you see you see that in the book of uh, and, and I'm not just talking about a happy ending there with all of the, the what's going on in the book itself, but what we see there toward the end is that the, the Boaz and Ruth marry and then they have children and their children, and we see that she becomes the great grandmother of the great King David. Uh, in fact, some people think that perhaps this was written in the time of David, that the book of Ruth was written in the time of David uh, to to make clear, you know, the relationship that God used even a, a Moabite woman. Now, and there's several good lessons we can get from this that, that uh, you know, sometimes the, the, the Bible seems to be a little bit ethnocentric, you know, the people of Israel, and it seems like it's racist that, you know, they're better. Than, well, that's not at all the biblical uh, pattern, not at all. In the first place, they're not a race, uh, the Jewish people. They were kind of a, a a relational thing of father to son Abraham Isaac and Jacob and now to the other the tribes of Israel and so on so it it was a people group but it was a people group united more by their faith and trust in the true and living God the fact that God would use family as a basis to establish his presence on the planet earth and that he would use family it it it, it it just heightens the the see God invented family, husbands and wives and moms and dads and grandpa and grandma and uncles and aunts. Family is God's idea, and that God in in it's such a powerful positive aspect of a human experience that God would use it. Family is key to everything that God does throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. You'll see family, even even weak. Family, even family that's difficult, have difficulties and complications. Family still provides the 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 um, the, the 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 groundwork for much of what God accomplishes. Uh, even in the life of Jesus the Messiah, we see family. We see, uh, and, and we open up with the Gospel of Luke with a recap of the family lineage of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, Doctor Luke is a physician. Now, of course, this all comes about 
about you know 1500 years later after uh, uh Ruth and, and and Naomi and Boaz and so on and then comes to King David and then on to uh then uh, years later through all the kings of Israel uh the kings of of Judah in the south the kings of Israel in the north when the when the kingdom divides there's Saul and then there's David and then there's Solomon and then the 10 tribes of the north there's a civil war or separation the 10 tribes in the north separate from uh, and they become Israel and the Judah becomes the south the tribes of Judah and Benjamin and so that takes that we go through all those uh, hundreds of years of history and different kings and so on, and then we have the four hundred silent years after the book of Malachi, and then you come to Jesus of Nazareth uh, of the lineage of the same lineage of Ruth and Boaz here in the Old Testament, and King David. Uh, uh, in fact, is that was a famous and and well known name for the Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures, and that's why Jesus so many times. I'm sorry, the Greek Scriptures in the New Testament. That's why Jesus so often is called the Son of David, um, Yeshua, Son of David. You know, have mercy on me. Others would say, and so on. And so he he was from the lineage by on both his mother and father's side. That uh, Jesus was. Uh, from the lineage and ancestry of King David, as the Messiah was predicted to be, of course, in Scripture, that was uh, that he would be uh, uh, a in the lineage of King David. So we'll get to that. We've just kind of whipped through the time of Judges and whipped through the time of of um, Ruth, this beautiful little love story, and the significance of seeing God's at work even in the time of the Judges. But also, you see this link to the uh to the redemptive plan of God that existed from the beginning you know Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 uh you know remember the first prediction of a man a a a son of, of a woman Genesis 3:15 he said I will put enmity between you Satan the serpent and 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 the woman uh, uh, that from her seed uh, will come one. So a, a human being of the tribe of uh, of the people of the ancestry would total later the, uh, these these uh, prophecies about the Messiah that he would also be from the uh, lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and through the lineage of King David. And so all of that helped us narrow down and narrow down over three hundred predictions about the Messiah in the Hebrew Scriptures, and all of them. All of them came true and and were totally and perfectly fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth, except just a few that are still to be fulfilled. Uh, And and we're waiting (laughs) for him to return as Jesus promised to do at the end of his earthly life and ministry. So that's where we go. We're going to flip over now from the Old Testament, Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. We're going to jump over now in our next segment to a a study and a look at what we have learned about the the gospel of Luke. We read chapters 1 through 8 this past week uh, from this gospel, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. We still haven't gotten to yet, but these are pictures, portraits, literary portraits of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be uh, the Messiah, claimed to be the son of the living God 
and claimed to be that long-awaited, predicted Messiah, Redeemer, that uh, we have been talking about all this time in the Hebrew Scriptures. That's what Jesus, um, that's who Jesus said he was and who we have come to know and believe because of of his credentials, uh, who he was and what he accomplished on our behalf, that Jesus is indeed that that one who um, the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world and the redemptive plan of God from his eternal point of view and his eternal plan, but it had to take place in human history. It had to place take place. The fall of man took place in flesh, in blood, and in, in human history, and so did the redemption of man take place in human experience, in history, uh, in space and time. So uh, we'll go to that, talking about that in just a moment. Let me go take a phone call, though, because we do have a listener. Bob is calling in. Let me see if I can. He's gone. Oh, Bob is gone. Okay, Bob, give us a call back. We'll take that up as, if we can. And uh, any of you listening that would like to as well, I've, I've put out a couple of questions there <coughs> about <coughs> the book of Judges. And, you know, what What do you think the lessons were? What do we learn from those uh, ugly, difficult, depressing stories? <coughs> and um, excuse me. So uh, you might want to. Give us a comment. Uh, I think maybe Bob was going to give me a comment on that. Maybe you would like to as well. The phone number is 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. So let's jump right on into the Gospel of Luke and talk a little bit about that. Now, if you, by the way, if you want to hear... Uh, these books of the Bible, we read through the entire Bible every year. And that's what our program is built around. This program on the weekend, Sunday nights, we are simply reviewing the passages that we read this past week. In other words, we have a reading schedule that takes us through the Bible, and it's there on our website. You go to the thebiblelive.com the website, thebiblelive.com or just biblelive.com. Either one will get you to our website, biblelive.com. And I would I would kind of mention, it's not Bible Alive, the Bible Alive. It's the Bible Live, like Saturday Night Live. You get it? And, of course, the reason for that was because it, 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 for 15 or 16 years, we read the Bible live here on the radio. Now we put it on our website uh, and on uh, our podcast there, and you can still, now it's a little more flexible. You don't have to wait for the the nighttime on Monday Monday evening. Uh, our, you can just go to the website, and anytime during the day from your computer, from your smartphone, from your device, whatever you use to um, to bring down and download um, podcasts and information from the Internet, you can do that. Uh, go to thebiblelive.com, and you'll find our readings. You'll find the reading schedule uh, from you know Genesis through Revelation. All the readings are there. You can find any of them and follow your own schedule if you'd like. But if you follow our schedule, uh, we're reading um, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and now we've gone, we've alternated back to the, to the New Testament, and we're picking up there with the fourth, the third gospel of the New Testament, uh, the gospel of Luke. And so you can do that. 
uh, at our website, you find all kinds of, not only the readings are there, you'll find uh, music and songs, and you'll find articles, and you'll find helps and encouragement uh, in terms of understanding of the scriptures and a chance there to ask questions and so on. Uh, I'm my passion in life is one just an incredibly passionate love for this book, uh, this gift that God has given to humanity, uh, the, the, this record of God's working with men and women throughout history to bring about the redemptive plan, to carry it through, and to reveal himself, uh, things about himself and about us as human beings and about life on planet Earth. If you really want to know what life on planet Earth is all about and what reality truly is, then this book shows it to us clearly who uh, the Creator is, tells us truths about God, uh, his nature, his character, and it tells us truth about ourselves as human beings, and it tells us that redemptive story, what God has done in time and space to care, to bring, to give human, human beings the opportunity to enjoy a confident, secure relationship with the true and living God. That's what it's about. And that's why Jesus, the Messiah, had, had to come. That was his role, was to carry out uh, that redemptive plan of God, which had to do with, with, uh, with substitutionary atonement. Uh, God himself, uh, God became a man. We're, we're told in Scripture very, very clearly, uh, the Word became flesh. God became a man, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. In, in the, the Gospel of John, we're told, chapter 1, verse 14. But all the Gospels are the same. They all present the same picture of Jesus of Nazareth uh, as this Redeemer, this Savior, this Messiah. They re, they refer constantly to the uh, these 300 prophecies that we Told it, we talked about that are in the Old Testament. They refer to them in in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They t- they show us those predictions and those prophecies, and show them how they were completed and how they were fulfilled in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Uh, that that gave us that assurance that he was indeed who he claimed to be, that long-awaited Messiah, uh, the God incarnate. The Word became flesh, uh, and uh, that's that's what we see here in the Gospel of Luke. Now, the Gospel of Luke is written by who is Luke? Luke is the is in the first place. He's uh, he's not a, uh, he's not a Hebrew. Luke is the only known Gentile writer Gentile writer in the New Testament. Uh, so, and he is a physician. Uh, a doctor, medical doctor, uh, we learn about God. And he he is a, a, a very uh, literate, very informed, very educated, of course, as a physician, you would expect that. Uh, he is an educated man. He writes beautiful Greek, uh, and he is a... a masterful historian. Uh, he records important dates, times, places, names, two books in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of Luke, and I'll put that out there as another question. Uh, any of our listeners that would like to answer, who? what was the other book that was written in the New Testament, the other book that was written by Dr. Luke? 
All right. If you can give us a call and answer that question, uh, we'll give you a gold star. 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. What was the other book that this Gentile physician, Dr. Luke, what was the other book of the New Testament that he wrote? Uh, give us a call if you'd like to answer that question for us, and we'd love to visit with you uh, as well about uh, about the Bible, about this book, and maybe even a little bit of, from the Gospel of Luke as well. He is a physician, um, and he begins by telling the story of the uh, of the forerunner of the Messiah. In the in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Old Testament, it is told clearly that there would be a forerunner. There would be someone who comes before uh, the Messiah who would come to announce his coming. Uh, this um, called a forerunner, you might, you know, kings of that time, they had someone that would run before them and announce them that they're coming, you know, the Caesars and the high officials. Well, this was, uh, it was announced that there would be one who would come before a prophet who would come uh, uh, and who would announce the coming of the Messiah. And so we start our opening chapters of the book of Luke. If you go to the book of Luke, the first thing we'll find is chapters 1 and 2. We find um, the ancestry of the Messiah that is laid out because that's important. Because that's an important characteristic uh, we know about uh, the Messiah. And so everything is very orderly done. We start, start out with the birth of John the baptizer. John the baptizer, there is a, uh, there is a Jewish couple he, uh, who they are Levites, uh, both of them from the tribe of Levi, the, and they are the parents of John the baptizer. And um, let's see what I can say. Zachariah is his name. Elizabeth is his wife's name. And they are told by an angel, by Gabriel, as we're told the name. That Remember, we know about the archangels uh, from the Hebrew Scriptures in the Old Testament. We're told about uh, there are three archangels. One is called Gabriel. It seems to function as the messenger from God. We see him in the Hebrew Scriptures in the book of Daniel and other places. We see uh, Gabriel delivering messages from God to God's people. Uh, and we see him delivering the message of John the Baptist. And later on, the message about the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua himself, to his parents as well. So Gabriel is there. And then there's Michael, another archangel uh, to whom we are uh, uh, introduced in the Hebrew Scriptures, uh, Michael the warrior, who, um, we're, for example, in the book of Daniel, he appears. He, uh, we're told that he is uh, he has to fight against uh, Satan, the prince of Persia, as uh, our understanding. And that was the, the third archangel was indeed Lucifer. Uh, uh, son of the morning, uh, the Lucifer, that we're told, uh, was an archangel of God, probably supervising the 
worship around the throne of God, a person attendant to God, worship, and uh, he is identified uh, in the passages that we know about, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel chapter 28, the book of Job. We see Satan is, even in the book of Genesis, in the opening chapters, he is there tempting and deceiving and confusing uh, Adam and Eve and, and, and tempting them and moving them toward the fall and into sin. Uh, so, but he was indeed a, an archangel of God before and before his fall. And it's the, um, the books of, uh, Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. That's where we get the idea this, that he was an archangel, beautiful, uh, and attentive to God. And, and then pride was found in him. Uh, arrogance and pride and uh, both of those great prophets, Ezekiel and uh, uh, Isaiah, they started out speaking to an earthly uh, an earthly king, an, er- an earthly tyrant. Uh, Isaiah, I believe, was speaking to the king of Nebuchadnezzar of Persia, of Babylon. And I think, I, if I remember correctly, Ezekiel is talking to a king of Tyre and Sidon, uh, the great city-state of Tyre, very wealthy and powerful. And these are very wealthy, powerful men, and they had dreams of deity. They called themselves gods and, and declared themselves to be gods. Uh, and uh, these two prophets address them courageously, address them and uh, declaring to them their downfall, that they're going to be judged by the true and living God. But in their passages, if you look in Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, there's a time when they're clearly addressing a king, a human being who is a an emperor of Babylon or of, uh, of Tyre, um, but clearly in the passages, they take a turn during the passage, and all of a sudden it's very clear they're no longer addressing a human being. They're no longer addressing a mortal being. They have turned to, they're addressing a, a supernatural being, a spiritual being. Uh, and that is, they turn from addressing the, the earthly king to the spiritual king, the spiritual uh, emperor behind their wicked rule. And so that's where we get the idea. And of course, Jesus himself, uh, as the Messiah, uh, talks about the fact that he is that he saw. Uh, Satan fall when he was cast from heaven. Um, now we're going to talk about that a little bit because uh, in what in what way did Jesus mean that? He said, uh, "I saw Satan." Now came after a training exercise with his disciples. They he sent them out and they cast out even they even they heed our word. You know, we were able to cast out demons, and Jesus said, "Oh, that's wonderful." Remember, I saw Satan cast from heaven. Uh, I saw him, but don't, so don't celebrate so much that you're able to cast out demons as that your name is written in the book of life. So there's, there's something there that we need to find out about Jesus. If we're going to read and enjoy the, the gospel message and the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even the rest of understand God and the redemptive plan of God, we're going to have to re- understand more about this unique individual called the Messiah. 
uh, Jesus of Nazareth. And so we're going to talk about the idea that how did God become a man? What was the nature of the incarnation? Um, how was Jesus both true God, eternal God, and yet at the same time, true, total, absolute man? human being uh, like us as well that we can identify with i want to try to take that apart we're going to spend our last segment with uh, uh, talking a little bit about the christology of the new testament how we can view and understand in ways that are very satisfying and very very liberating and powerful uh, how can we understand who jesus was what he accomplished and how he accomplished it on our behalf so don't go away we'll come back with our final segment back our final segment here on the bible live broadcast great pick there hear the call of the kingdom hear the call of the kingdom god's kingdom god is doing something in human history from the very beginning he's been calling out a people for himself Uh, i will be their god they will be my people Uh, all throughout human history from the garden of eden on that's what god has been up to he's calling out a people for himself and the basis for that is that uh he has he has qualified us and enables us to become god's people uh, by the work of redemption we have been purchased and we've been bought back uh, bought back from some sin in the kingdom of darkness, we have been redeemed and purchased. Now, that is one of the beautiful aspects of the book of Ruth, is this idea of the kinsman redeemer. I already explained it to you, that Boaz becomes a kinsman redeemer for uh, Ruth, and he takes her into his household, and and that is what uh, that is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. He is our kinsman redeemer into the family of God. He is the one who now brings us into God's kingdom by His work, th- th- what He accomplished for us, and that has to do with Him being both holy, eternal, perfect God and perfect man. And so I, I want to talk about that a little bit tonight because that these are, uh, of course, we could talk just about the things that we read in the book of uh, Luke, the things that we, we read about, uh, as I said, we read about Zechariah and Elizabeth. We read about the birth of John the baptizer, uh, the role of Gabriel, the archangel, in delivering those messages. Remember, Zechariah kind of doubted the angel's message, so he was told he wouldn't be able to even speak. He couldn't able to say wouldn't be able to say a single word. He lost his voice entirely until after uh, John was born. And his first words were, his name is John. (laughs) And he got his voice back. Um, Now, Luke, Dr. Luke's emphasis in his gospel is Jesus 
as the perfect man. Matthew, his emphasis, now this, these are just general broad stroke emphasis. Matthew wrote primarily to a Jewish audience, and he was emphasizing Jesus as the king, the kingship, the Jesus as the, the, the king of Israel. He was the rightful king, and he emphasized it, uh, the Jesus in his role as the uh, as a Jewish man, uh, the Redeemer had to be, and so in his role in his relationship to Israel, that was Matthew's perspective. Uh, Mark talked about Jesus the servant, his servant role, and we talked about that when we read the Gospel of Mark. We see Jesus moving from one person to another, one village to another, uh, helping this one, helping that one. Uh, his servant role, uh, and. Uh, that is emphasized in the Gospel of Mark. Now, Luke emphasizes the humanity aspect, the, the perfect uh, aspect, the perfect man that Jesus was. So that's what I want to talk about a little bit because some people get quite confused. We understand the doctrine. We understand it as a uh, a doctrine, as a, uh, uh, a tenet of our faith, uh, the the incarnation uh, that God was uh, both ma- that Jesus was both eternal God, uh, the the uh, uh, one of the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, as as Jesus Himself taught over and over again, uh, His relationship to the Father, uh, and of course we talked about that a week or two ago as well. The idea of the plurality of the Godhead. That hero Israel, the Lord your God is one is true. There, there's only one God. There's, there we don't worship multiple gods, but how can that be so, Soapy? When you're saying that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead: God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Well, we would be worshiping three distinct gods. Each of the each of those. Uh, divine personages, each of them is God. Each each has all the aspects and characteristics of uh, of personhood, intellect, emotion, and will. Each of them exercise independent into intellect, emotion, and will. The Father, the Son, the Spirit. Uh, but each of them is well. Uh, they share among them the, the, all of the attributes, all of the characteristics of deity. Uh, each is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, eternal holy, all of the attributes of, 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 of divinity, each of them have all of those attributes as well, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so there are three distinct persons. So if it weren't for one factor, we would indeed, you know, we'd be, we'd be polyth- polytheists. Would be, the one factor is that they dwell in perfect eternal oneness and and the way I understand it, and I think the way that you could understand it, it may mean far more than that i mean the the eternal nature of the creator of the universe uh, it should not surprise any of us that there would be some aspects of his being of his uh, as as God, there are going to be some aspects of his being that are going to be probably a little confusing. 
to us mere mortals who live in time. We are limited by time, and we experience reality sequentially, one thing after another. And yet God, we know, is eternal. Uh, It doesn't mean he lives a long time. It means he lives outside of time. Uh, Time is something God created, Uh, the, the realm in which we move and live and have our being in time. Uh, he can move in and, in and out of it. God can move into time and function in time. He has. He spoke. He acted. But he's not limited to it uh, in any by any means. So uh, the the way that we can understand the oneness of the Godhead is relationally. That's one thing we know about oneness of relationship, and that's what we see in the Godhead. They are eternally united in perfect relational harmony harmony they are they have a perfect love uh, a oneness in their love for each other a oneness in their character and their nature all the attributes that i mentioned holiness and righteousness and so on their oneness in their love they're in the character their oneness in their intent and and their plan and what they intend to do what they the plan of redemption for example creation we see the father the son the spirit all involved in the act of creation of planet earth and the in the planets and the sun the moon the stars uh we see that they 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 planned that together and they're perfectly one live in perfect harmony and oneness in their actions they function together in perfect harmony and oneness there's no jealousy uh there is no uh, like i said they dwell in perfect harmony love relationship uh, between the father and the son that is the oneness nature that's the secret of understanding the trinity uh, as best i can come to it Uh, and i think it's very satisfying because it is at least something we can understand now, the idea of three being one, if you're a mathematician like I am, uh, have, my undergraduate degree is in mathematics, uh, one plus one plus one doesn't equal one. You know, we, we know it's three. Uh, but there may be things in a realm of mathematics we don't know, but we do understand the oneness and the harmony of perfect relationship. So if that's satisfying and helpful to you to understand, that's how the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Now, uh, somewhere in, in, in eternity, uh, the plan of redemption was, and we're, it spilled out there in the book of Genesis, that from the woman, a man, a human being is going to be born, a man, a male of the human species, a male is going to be born who is going to uh, crush the head of Satan. He is going to destroy. Satan had just caused the fall of humanity. Adam and Eve fell into sin, and with them, the whole human race fell under the consequences of of sin. And God had warned them clearly: in the day that you disobey and eat of that tree, you will die. Spiritually, they become separated from God. The idea of death in the scriptures is separation, uh, like the soapy dollar were to to die tonight here on the radio. I keel over and die. What happens? The spirit, the soul, the non-material separates from the body, and we have a dead body. The idea of death is separation in that uh, when we fell into sin, we became separated, relationally separated from God. Uh, we're not rightly related to him now, and sin um, that is the death that, that God speaks of in the in the book of Genesis. In the day that you eat of that, you will die. When Adam and Eve ate of that forbidden fruit, 
uh, in the garden. They didn't die physically at that time, but they did experience isolation. They experienced separation and the loss of that intimate personal relationship that they had enjoyed with God, uh, a confident, secure relationship with him. And so a redeemer was needed. And right away we see in Genesis 3.15, the first promise of this redeemer who is going to come, he's going to be a human being. He's not going to be an extraterrestrial. He's not going to be an animal. He's not going to be a, uh, an angel. He's going to be a human being, and that's why Paul in the book of Galatians says, uh, in the right time, in the place in human history, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He brings together those two parts that he's going to be born, a human being born of a and he's going to be born from the seed and the uh, uh, ancestry of Abraham, of the people of the, of the law in the Old Testament. Born of, God, of a woman, born under the law, and in the perfect time, God sent forth his son. Now, that's the birth of Jesus that we read about in Luke's cha- chapters 1 and 2. We read about uh, John the baptizer who comes, we read about his birth to Zechariah and Elizabeth who were unable to have children, but uh, miraculously were unable to have a child and he became John the Baptist. Now, uh, Zechariah uh, uh, and Elizabeth is a, a kinsman, a family member with Mary, uh, of the mother of Jesus. And we're told the story of how they meet, how they see one another. And Elizabeth goes to visit uh, Mary uh, remember in chapter one, verse 44, and her child, John, she was pregnant with John in the womb. And Elizabeth, and Mary was also pregnant at the same time with Jesus. Uh, and John leapt in, in Elizabeth's womb. We told about that simple, sweet little story in Luke chapter one, verse 44. Uh, there are a couple of other people, Simeon and Anna, that we're introduced to in chapter two of the gospel of Luke. They're two godly believing Jewish, uh, a man and woman, man and woman of faith. But they knew, they recognized, they walked with God, and they had a sensitivity to know that you're this, you're the, you're the mom, you're the, the mother of the Messiah, and so uh, we're told that about that in, in these opening chapters of Luke, chapters one and two. Now, let me ask this, and I've got to try to do this if I possibly can. There are two factors here that we want to make sure you understand that Jesus was indeed. I, I, full and entirely God. Now, I had a listener call a couple of weeks ago and said, you know, and, and it's all right. I don't mind. I don't mind people talking and having an opinion and thought or asking questions. But the idea is that Jesus never claimed to be God or, did, or that he wasn't God. Yes, there is no way you can do an honest reading of the New Testament, uh, even even the Hebrew Scriptures as well point to this reality but you can't jesus clearly in the new testament clearly in his life claimed to be god there's no doubt about that he uh, he's he, he wasn't just something his followers made up afterward years later made it up and created it jesus himself created and and, and that understanding and constantly consistently um said and that he indeed was uh, one with God the Father, that he was God, eternal uh, Son of God. Now, uh, if you 
don't believe me here on the radio telling you that. Then read your New Testament. There's another a wonderful book, many great books about this. Uh, Josh McDowell has written a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It talked about uh, if Jesus wasn't God, then he deserved an, an Oscar. Uh, that that uh, In fact, is that we have very clear evidence that, that Jesus was God incarnate. God took on flesh. That's what Paul tells us in, in uh, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, that's what John tells us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the only glory of the Father. Um, and so it is very, very clear. And you can read a book. There's a wonderful book I read many years ago that is it's a simple, small little book. It's called Basic Christianity by a wonderful preacher, uh, uh, pastor. He's English. He's from uh, England and London. Uh, he was the, uh, I forgot the name of, I've sung in his church years and years ago. We sang in their church uh, as part of our campus crusade ministry. We, I was, we were in the music ministry for several years and we were there in his congregation. I, oh, I can't remember. I can't believe I forgotten the name of the, his church in London. But John Stott is his name, S T O T T. And he wrote a book called Basic Christianity. And he, and he establishes very, very clearly and convincingly um, that Jesus indeed, indeed did claim to be God. Uh, he, in fact, breaks down Jesus' claims into his direct claims, his indirect claims, and his dramatic claims. The, drama- the direct claims is the instances in which Jesus actually said in clear uh in clear Greek, <laughs> I was going to say in clear English, uh, he says in clear Greek, uh, he established and, and actually says very clearly, I am God. Right? And even those very words, remember in John chapter 8, uh, the the religious leaders, uh, uh, Jewish religious leaders who, who were opposing him, uh, as opposed to the many, many Jewish people who accepted him and followed him and admired him and trusted him, uh, the Jewish leaders who re- rejected Christ, uh, they were uh, uh, not attacking, but debating with Jesus in John chapter 8. And and uh, he says to them very clearly in that context, he establishes the fact that he is indeed God. He says, before Abraham was I am. And he uses that phrase, that those words that are those famous words from the burning bush when Moses, when God says, uh, Moses says, who, who should I tell Pharaoh that, that sent me? And he said, I am has sent you. And Jesus uses those words before Moses, before Abraham ever existed. He said, I am. And of course, it wasn't just us reading it now and making the they at that time understood that Jesus was claiming to be God and they why, why did I know that well, they picked up stones to stone him to death that that was the penalty for claiming to be God and at his at his trial he they asked him very clearly if he is uh, the Messiah if he's the son of God and he says you have said it I am yes I am and they said well enough said you being a mere man and make yourself out to be God and so it's very clear that Jesus clearly both to his enemies and his friends claimed to be God he 
accepted and, and now I'll go to his indirect claims. Uh, and we read about in, in Luke chapter five, we read about how he forgave a man his sins. And the indirect claims means that Jesus took upon himself the initiatives and the prerogatives that only God had. And there was this, there was this uh, paralyzed man. Uh, in chapter five, that uh, that uh, his friends brought him to Jesus, and Jesus, before he healed him, says, "Your sins are forgiven." And of course, the the Jewish leaders and, and the religious leaders that opposed him said, "Oh, you can't do that. Only God can forgive sins." And Jesus uses as a perfect teaching moment to say, "Well, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise up and walk?" And so that you'll know that I, the Son of Man, do have the power to forgive sin, I say to you, rise up and walk. And so he healed the paralyzed man and and very clearly saying, I have the divine prerogatives of forgiving sins. He accepts worship. Remember when, oh, I can think of several occasions when people bowed before him. Uh, he didn't correct them. I, uh, Peter said, who do you say that I am? Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Messiah, the word Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus didn't correct him. Oh, no, no, Peter, don't say that. Oh, no, you've gone too far. No, he said, you know, flesh and blood did not reveal to that to you, but my father has revealed that to you. And not only did he not deny it, he, he embraced it and, and confirmed it. And you see that same thing happened with Thomas later after Jesus' resurrection. Thomas is not in the room the first time Jesus appears to his disciples. And the next time Thomas is there and he comes and Jesus said, you can put your hands in my wounds and my hands in my side. Uh, you, you can touch the scars. You, you can see. And, and what does Thomas say when he sees the risen, resurrected Christ and the wounds in his, in his body? Thomas says, my Lord and my God. Did Jesus go, oh, Thomas, no, don't say that. Ooh, that's blasphemy. You should no. He accepted that worship. He, he confirmed it. Uh, Jesus clearly, both directly and indirectly, uh, he said he was the Lord, Lord of the Sabbath. You know, he uh, could determine what was the right reading of the Sabbath and what when he was accused of, of eating on the Sabbath and working on the Sabbath. And then there was the dramatic claims that he was God, the, the instances when he demonstrated supernatural power of healing, raising the dead, casting out demons, calming the wind and the storms on the sea. Remember when he did that, the, the, his own disciples said, what manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And, of course, we know from the Psalms that that was one of that was the predicted that one of the characteristics of the Messiah, that the wind and the waves would obey him. And so we we have those pictures. Jesus clearly claimed to be God. There's no doubt about it. And he did not come to planet Earth to prove he was God. That wasn't Jesus. There's two things about Jesus you're going to have to understand if you have a right understanding. He did not come to planet Earth to prove he was God, and he did not come to planet Earth to start a new religion. That 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 has nothing. That's our human kind of understanding of it. But that wasn't, I mean, the fact that a new religion has raised up or what we call a new religion, Christianity uh, around him, uh, he, he, that he didn't come to start a new religion. Uh, the uh, That wasn't his fundamental purpose. Uh, he came to carry out this redemptive plan to establish the means, the basis upon which any human being that wants to have a 
confident, secure relationship with God uh, can have that confident, secure relationship with God, even here during our earthly life. That is the plan of God. And anyone who's ever going to be in heaven someday, every human being that will be in heaven will be there because of the finished work of Jesus the Messiah, the redemptive plan of God. Uh, Next week, we'll talk about the other aspect of our question tonight, Jesus as God. We'll talk about Jesus as the perfect man. How does that happen? How How does the creator God become a man? See you next Sunday. The Bible Live is dedicated to helping restore the Bible to our culture. Mailing address is P.O. Box 18888. That's Box 18888. San Antonio, Texas 78218. Hear the entire Bible every year on The Bible Live, weeknights at 930 on this great station. Then join Soapy every Sunday evening at 9 o'clock for fun, inspiration, and valuable prizes on The The Bible Bible Live Quiz Show. Visit our website, BibleLive.com. That's BibleLive.com for more information about Soapy and The Bible Live broadcast. You may also order materials at the website and make tax-deductible donations to help minister to our military personnel and broadcast the entire Bible every year to America and the world.